Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Historic Architecture of Pennsylvania, Scott Butcher. Scott Butcher, author of Historic Architecture of Pennsylvania. If someone buys this book, what do they get? They get a lot of information on the architecture of South Central Pennsylvania. It uh, covers six counties, and that's Adams, Cumberland, Dauphin, Lancaster, Lebanon, and York. And it's really a style guide to American architecture, but viewed through the lens of those six particular counties. Is this a particular hobby of yours? It, it is. It became a hobby over the years. I actually went to school for marketing, and while I was in school, I took an architectural appreciation course. And about 80% of our grade was based on a term paper. And so for my paper, I decided to do the architecture of York. And I wandered around with a camera and did what I could to research the various architectural styles and, and came up with my own little guide to York architecture. And from there, it sort of grew over the years. I got hired right out of college doing a job marketing and engineering firm and you know, full-fledged into the architectural community looking at the various types of buildings that the firms were designing and that my company was getting involved with and really started developing uh, an even greater appreciation for architectural styles. And then about mid-1990s, I got an opportunity to get involved with the York County Convention and Visitors Bureau. And that led to me writing and photographing the visitor's guides. And I found that I was just increasingly drawn to the buildings in York. Uh, there's a number of historic buildings that are open for tours, so it's part of the overall tourism product. And I did a number of uh, visitor's guides for the county, then working with that publisher, got involved with some relocation guides. Uh, it was called Relocation Link York County. And again, I'm kind of writing about a community and architecture where appropriate. And then that led into the opportunity to do some city visitor's guides as well. And along about this process, I started writing more and more of local interest type publications. I did an article for Pennsylvania Magazine. And I created a website called Virtual York that was basically a tour of downtown York, but it had a lot of information on the architecture and the styles. And I was actually going back to that term paper I had written by this point about 10 years prior and developed this online virtual tour of York. And that was kind of a springboard, sort of that virtual tour and the visitor's guides into writing books of local interest. And so I've written close to a dozen now. And uh, one of the common themes through what I've written is always the architecture. Architecture defines communities. Um, architecture can give a community so much character, or the lack of nice architecture can create a very unattractive community. You know, architecture itself is not going to, in most instances, draw people into a community, but it creates an amazing backdrop. And I found over the years that people, have, they've walked by these buildings hundreds of times, but they've never looked up. And if you look up, there's, there's wonderful ornamentation, 
great architectural detail and you kind of develop a new appreciation for the town where you live based upon what you're learning from the building's facades. Do you do that all the time now? You walk around and say, oh, well, there's colonial, oh, there's neo-modern. Yeah, my wife would tell you I do that too often and I uh, sometimes will say, okay, what style was that, dear? <laughs> Quiz her on it. But yeah, I, I've gotten around to a lot of communities over the years and I always want to spend time walking through the downtown and looking at the architecture. Now, your book is divided into a lot of different styles of mm -hmm. architecture. Is, are you self-taught in that? And how did you decide what was what particular style <laughs> of architecture? Well, th that's interesting. I, I am self-taught. I didn't go to school for architecture. And I know a lot of amazing architects that really don't have a foundation in historic architecture, particularly the American styles. Um, they may go to college for architecture and learn about you know the techniques of the ancient Greeks and Romans and Egyptians and but then when you get to you know say colonial revival or craftsmen or some of the American styles it's just nothing that they studied a lot it's something you really see more so from historic preservationists and I spent nine years on the board of directors of Historic York and Historic York is the only countywide architectural preservation organization in York County and so uh, you know that was just sort of the background for what became the book, just a, another exposure avenue for me to learn more and work with preservationists. There's a lot of pictures in this book. Did mm -hmm. you take them all? I did. Yeah, photography has been a hobby of mine for many years. I actually did a, uh, now this dates me, but I did a correspondence photography program back in the early 90s. You know, there was no internet, and so we, we were taught by book, and then we would have uh, an occasional video to study, and I do my assignment on whatever the photography happened to be. It could be product photography or architectural photography or portrait photography, which I'm horrible at, by the way. And I would uh, send in my assignment to the teacher in New York, and I'd get back an audio cassette tape with a critique of my work. And so, you know, photography... An audio critique of your print material. Correct, correct. And so photography just became um, a real big hobby for me, and it's nice... Uh, you know, with all these local interest books I've done over the years, um, most of them have had my photos in. One exception was a postcard history I did, which was collecting historic photos. And it's, I can go out, I can take the pictures that might, I might want to use in the book, as well as some details or other information that will help me when I research a building, for instance, or a community. So it's, it's worked out well having the writing and photography skills. Do you know how many uh, buildings you feature in this? There are slightly over 180. And uh, how long from start to finish did it take you to take all the pictures? Forever. Because <laughs> obviously multiple pictures of each building. So Certainly. You pick. Well, you know, there's, there's 180 buildings and structures featured in this book, a little more. And I, I had a sort of a long list of candidates that was more than double that. And it was a process that took many years to get all the photos together. I um, have done some other local interest books in South Central Pennsylvania, um, several in York, one in Lancaster, one in Gettysburg. I've been working on one in Harrisburg um, for my follow-on books. So through the process, I was taking photos for what would become the architectural book as well as for uh, Lancaster County Reflections, for instance, was one of my titles. And that was more a look at all the communities in Lancaster. But when you photograph communities, you're often just photographing buildings. And so it kind of goes hand in hand. But then what I found is in a lot of cases, when I was looking for buildings to include, I'd go back through my photo files 
and think, okay, well, that is a good photo, an overview, but it's not good enough for the book. So I would have to go back out and re-photograph that particular building or structure. Uh, but then what I also tried to do, there's, there's roughly three dozen architectural styles in this book, um, broken down from you know, really early 18th century, 1719 is probably the oldest building in this neck of the woods here. And I wanted to get three, four, five good examples of each and every architectural style. And I struggled with that. Um, for some of the more popular styles, it was pretty easy to do. Um, and I also wanted to get examples from all the different communities, not just one or two. You know, it's easy to go to Harrisburg, Lancaster, and York and get a lot of different architectural styles, but I wanted Gettysburg and Carlisle and Lebanon and, you know, more rural areas as well. So that was a challenge. And so I actually found myself, you know, number one, just when I had time driving through communities and looking around to see what I could see. And also, thank goodness for the Internet, I could type in, the name of an architectural style and the name of a community and Google it. And what I found is real estate listings, for instance, would help me find some certain styles in different communities. Are some just residential dwellings that you'd knocked on the door and said, can I photograph your house? I actually didn't knock on any doors. Um, we're fortunate with uh, the way the photography laws are in the United States. If you stand on a public street or a public sidewalk and something is totally visible to you, you know, we're typically talking building, exteriors, front facades, then you are able to photograph it and include it in a work like a book. Do, are there certain aspects of buildings that catch your eye, like a roof line or a window that, that you're particularly fond of studying? It, it really could be anything. Uh, it's what draws your eye in, and that's what's great about these diversity of architectural styles, as some of them have a real emphasis on the roof line. And if you're just looking at it from ground level as you walk by, it's, it's nondescript, but you look up and, you know, maybe it's the, the height of the chimneys or the towers or turrets that might be on it, or, you know, there are a handful of buildings in the area that have battlements. So it has sort of that medieval castle feel. And in other cases, it's the ground level. It's an elaborate doorway, an entryway to get into a building. And as you look at that, you're kind of drawn in, but if you look up, the upper levels might not be that interesting or descriptive. Well, let's talk about some specifics. You mentioned the, the ones that look like battlements, and you have a couple here labeled Neo-Norman. Neo-Norman, yes. One is the Cumberland County Prison, which anyone who drives into Carlisle is, mm -hmm. is faced with. Uh, and another one is the Gethsemane Hall, and these look like like Middle Ages fortresses. They, cer uh, they sure do. Is that a style that was in vogue for a short it, time? It was uh, barely in vogue. It's sort of a, an outgrowth of the much more common Romanesque style of architecture, which is a, a round arch style. And you found these castles primarily for prisons. So, you know, the Cumberland County Prison is a great example. It was designed by Edward Haviland, who was the son of a very famous architect, John Haviland. He designed the Eastern State Penitentiary as well as the Lancaster County Prison. His son designed very similar prisons in Carlisle and in York. And the York prison was demolished. The Carlisle prison uh, fortunately still stands today. And it, it really does look like a medieval castle. The Gethsemane Hall that you mentioned is actually in York. And it has a, a totally different background in how it came to be. It was constructed by the local Masonic community. They had purchased an old post office building that was a, a more typical federal building, red brick, Romanesque, very interesting, had served as the post office. 
built in the 1890s, and when the Postal Service relocated to uh, a newer facility, the Masons took over the old building, and they needed larger space for their meeting hall, so they constructed this Gethsemane Hall to look like a castle. And what's really interesting is I've done some walking tours of York, and just because of the way the roads are, uh, there's a one-way street that people pass by Gethsemane Hall because it's just around the corner from the main street. So people drive by it every day and don't realize there's a castle there. And then on the walking tours, I have them turn around and see what was behind them, and they're like, gee, there's a castle. I actually had somebody argue with me once. Uh, that particular building was on the cover of another book I did called York's Historic Architecture. And the person was saying, no, no, this is the Lancaster County Prison. This isn't in York. And Sure enough, I took him to the location to prove that it was, in fact, in York. I sort of get the feeling that I could flip this book open to any page and you could discourse on any building we, we land on well, there. Well, I could certainly try. There's lots of facts and figures and architects and dates and styles. <laughs> Stump the author. Well, there's one that uh, you mentioned famous architects, and one that caught my eye is the Olivetti Underwood building that you said, to, oh, well, World-renowned architects, sometimes called Starkitects, don't usually design industrial buildings. Here's one that was designed by Louis Kahn of yes. Philadelphia. Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting building. It was, um, you know, today in the construction industry, there's a trend towards prefabricated construction. Uh, you build pieces of it in a factory and assemble it on site. That particular building was built that way in the late 1960s, but it was an industrial building. It was built for a typewriter company. Um, they're long gone, but the building still stands. And, you know, when you think industrial buildings, they're typically nothing grand. Uh, they're often, you know, sort of cheap, uh, nondescript exteriors because all the money goes into the interior manufacturing. But here was a case where the company actually hired one of America's best-known architects. And he designed this building in what was known as the international style, uh, which is a very broad stylistic category that sometimes makes it difficult to define but he designed a, designed a very nice industrial building and you know the architect term you, you hear more so later in the 20th century um, Frank Gehry is a very famous practicing architect right now that gets architect attached to him whether he wants it or not but you go back you think Frank Lloyd Wright he's probably America's most famous architect. Uh, on the same page as the Olivetti Underwood book, and I, I really thought we'd start with older mm -hmm. buildings first, but while I'm on this page, you have the Pennsylvania Department of Labor and Industry, and anyone driving past that would think it's just kind of a nondescript concrete and glass, mm -hmm. as generic a building as you can find. What, what about that is architecturally significant? Well, it's, it's, very, it's a very good indicator of the style of architecture prominent in the mid-20th century. Um, the international style was very common for some of the skyscrapers being constructed around the world. It was actually kind of birthed in Germany and found its way to the United States. Uh, so that particular example, it's, it's a notable building because of its size. It was a, a very large, very tall building in Harrisburg for the time it was constructed and even today. And it's also kind of very typical of the style of architecture you would find in the mid-20th century in the large urban areas. You're not going to find a building that big in York or Lancaster or some of the smaller towns. Some styles you just don't like personally that you included in the book anyway? Sure, you sort of sure. had to. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's, um, we get to a period in the mid-20th century where it becomes extremely difficult to define a building by style. 
And what I did with this book is I went to the National Register of Historic Places and I looked at the way that they defined styles by architectural periods, by dates, by primarily, uh, primary stylistic embellishments, and I used that as my basis. And so when you get to the mid-20th century, they simply call it the modern movement. And so when you're looking in the modern movement, it could be the State Museum and Archives building in Harrisburg. It could be the recently demolished Cyclorama building in Gettysburg. Both of those buildings have large masses of concrete. And there's sort of a sub-style that's known as brutalism. And brutalism is exactly as it sounds. It's large masses of concrete, very few, if any, window openings, no stylistic details, and it's just brutal look at. And there was a period in American architecture, fortunately a very, very narrow period, where this was a popular style. Now, it's interesting if you read the preservation magazines today, there's an argument whether or not these buildings are worth preserving. And a lot of people hate them, a lot of people hate working in them, yet it is a very distinctive style of architecture that was popular in a very, very brief window. Are there some you've come across that just defy category, categorizing because there's sort of a mishmash of different certainly, styles? Certainly, certainly. And there's even a stylistic term during the Victorian era of Victorian eclectic. And you basically had these architects that were uh, designing by pattern books. That was very common in the, the 18th century towards the post-revolution years. Uh, and then throughout the 19th century, many well-known architects rose to fame by publishing pattern books. And so you had these architects sitting down with their clients and looking at features of this style and features of that style. And the, the clients were saying, well, I like this, I like that, I like this, I like that. So you get these buildings that are just a mish mishmash. And so Victorian eclectic, like uh, I think of Booby's Brewery, uh, Mount Joy is an example. Um, there's quite a few of them throughout the area. Uh, the most famous example in the country is a brewery in Baltimore that just, it defies logic, it defies style. And you see that a lot just on normal architecture. Uh, and that sometimes makes identification a challenge because you look at the predominant style of a building. But we're dealing with a lot of old buildings. So you have the original style that it may have been designed and built in, but then you have subsequent alterations that occurred over the years. And so it may have been born in one style, but now resembles another style. That's quite common. And what's really interesting, and I found this out when working on the book, I went through probably about a dozen different style guides, um, looking at how the different styles are defined. And I learned that it's very subjective, that there's a lot of argument in the preservation community as far as what constitutes a particular style. So I'm looking at you know, photos of some very famous buildings and one author has it defined in style A and the other has it defined in style B and I'm scratching my head. So you know, I, I reached out, uh, Mindy Crawford was an excellent resource to me. She's the director of Preservation Pennsylvania. Um, she actually had been the executive director of Historic York. So I would reach out to her and she'd set me straight. Uh, Alicia Wright and Barb Raid were two other people that worked with Historic York that really helped me on my way to defining the styles. Um, what I also found in the process is that even the National Register of Historic Places, when they define the different periods and the styles, it's how they define it. 
but they too might be in disagreement with what some of the style guides state. And so often what I found myself doing is, you know, I have my own opinion of what defines a style and I kind of develop my own outline. And if you read the book, you'll see that I'm doing a lot of uh, information on what defines a style. Every little chapter or section of the book begins with an overview of a particular style and then it goes on to a number of regional examples of that style. Um, but what I found myself doing more and more is going to the National Register of Historic Places database and where buildings are listed and they could be listed individually or they could be listed as part of a broader historic district and find out how the historians that filled out the paperwork to get them on the National Register, how did they define the style of the building? I want to get to some of the specific uh, buildings because you sent us a list of ones you wanted to talk about and it's a long list and I don't think we'll get to all of them. <laughs> oh, that, that's quite all right. Let's start uh, first. I guess they go in order that they are in the book. and We can jump around a lot sure, if you want. Sure. But you have you start off with the Hans Herr House, which is the cover of the book also. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Well, you know, that one, it belonged on the cover simply because it's the oldest building in the region that the book covers. And Hans Herr House is... German colonial in style and you know it sort of also belonged on the cover because of that because when you look at styles of American architecture and the evolution of architecture you have to largely base it on the immigrants to the different areas so Philadelphia and yet yeah, Lancaster York settled by the English but primarily populated by the Germans in the early years so in England uh, excuse me in Philadelphia you had a lot of English influenced architecture you look in the southwestern United States, you have a lot of Spanish-influenced ar architecture. New Orleans had the French influence. But for south-central Pennsylvania, and really Lehigh Valley, and it, it kind of winds down even into western Maryland, Frederick Hagerstown, uh, this was sort of the area settled by the Pennsylvania Germans. And so their style of architecture was brought here. And it, it's a direct comparison to the English architecture in that there's some very defined stylistic differences. And so the English, they liked uh, formal symmetry, uh, high ornamentation on the high style examples that you would find more so in Philadelphia than you would in say Lancaster and York. Germans, for them it was form follows function. So whereas the English examples are symmetrical typically, the German examples are asymmetrical, whereas the English liked the end chimneys, you know, heat the building from the outside, the Germans liked central chimneys. Now this building, Hans Herr House, is out of a brown stone? Uh, it was a local field stone it would have been built from. How often is the style determined by the materials that are available at hand? Um, not often at all. Uh, brutalism, concrete, yes. Mm -hmm. But more so, it's sort of the stylistic interpretation of the design. So it could be the symmetry, it could be the roofs, the chimneys, the details that are used to embellish it. Uh, the German colonial buildings, uh, very, very simple, uh, but built from whatever was available. So you have fieldstone examples. Uh, there were quite a few wood examples that just haven't survived the test of time. And then you have hybrids. And one of my favorite buildings in this part of the state is the uh, Golden Plow Tavern. The Golden Plow Tavern is located in York, and it is a Pennsylvania German style, or German colonial um, example. 
but it's sort of this, this subset of German colonial that's sometimes referred to as medieval half-timber. And it was settlers from a particular area in Germany, uh, the Black Forest, they had a very distinctive style of architecture that they used. So they still had the, the asymmetry that you would find in German colonial. They still had the central chimney. They still had typical wood, single, wood shingle roofs. Uh, but they used what was known as Fockwerk, or half-timbering. And, you know, you, you think of a Tudor house, the kind of the stereotypical Tudor has the decorative half-timbering, but it has no structural value. It's decorative primarily. With the medieval half-timber, it was structural. And so the Golden Plow Tavern, which dates from 1741, is a, it's a really interesting structure. It was most likely built originally as a one-story log house. And so when you look at it, you see the, the log house that is the first story. But then the second story that was added, perhaps just a year or two later, as it became a tavern and thus an inn, uh, has brick and then these uh, sort of a, an erector set pattern of half timbers. And if you actually go up to it and do what I said earlier, you look up, um, you can see that there are Roman numerals on the half timbers. So what the builders did is they laid out the half timbering on the ground, figuring out how they were going to build it. Then they marked them with Roman numerals, and then they constructed it and used brick for the infill. Is that open to the public? The it Bell? is. It's actually part of the York County Heritage Trust at their colonial complex. And you can go there and you can actually do a real neat architectural comparison because its neighbor is the General Horatio Gates House, which is English colonial or early Georgian. And so you can look at the German style and the English style side by side, and they're actually connected together on the interior. And then as a bonus, when you get your admission to that complex, there's what's known as the Barnett Bob Log House, which is an early 1800 log house, typical of central Pennsylvania as well as a replica of the first York County Courthouse, which is where the Second Continental Congress met and ratified the Articles of Confederation. Next one on your list is the uh, Bill Meyer House, mm -hmm. late Victorian, Italianate. Yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting, I love the Italianate style. It's sort of, as you evolved into sort of the higher picturesque Victorian period architecture, Italianette was one of the popular styles. It's very popular in the region, and there are just wonderful examples throughout South Central Pennsylvania. Um, one of the things that I like about the Billmeyer House, which uh, is not as grand as some of the other examples, but it has a very important place in the American preservation movement. And that is when you get to the 1970s, preservationists started to get it. Um, we had a period in the mid-20th century, um, 1960s in particular, where when we looked at buildings worth saving as a society, we looked at colonial buildings. Think Williamsburg. So all these grand buildings that were built in the 19th century were falling to the wrecking ball again and again and again. And finally, preservationists said, wait, there's more to architectural history than just colonial buildings. We have to preserve these gems. And they started creating HARB districts, or Historic Architectural Review Boards. And so for the Billmeyer House, it was slated for demolition. An adjacent church had purchased it, and they wanted the space for parking. 
well, it's just a grand, grand structure. It was built during the Civil War. In fact, it was under construction when York was occupied by the Army of Northern Virginia. So the Confederates would have walked right by it as they passed through York. And um, so it, it has a lot of history. It was worth preserving because of that. It was worth preserving because of the architectural style. And this church wanted to demolish it. And City Council of York, using the newly enacted Harb Law, said, no, you may not demolish it. Then it went to Pennsylvania courts, and the courts agreed with City Council. And in the end, the church, First Presbyterian Church, decided, you know what, it is a great building. Let's renovate it instead, and we'll make it our offices. So they did a great thing. It was a gem that was preserved for the community. And if you go and get a degree in preservation, no matter where you are, you might study First Presbyterian Church versus City Council of York, Pennsylvania, because that was one of the landmark um, architectural uh, lawsuits that took place. Do you have favorite buildings that uh, aren't there anymore that you would love to have seen or included in this book but were torn down? You know, uh, the answer is yes. And, you know, just looking at the area of focus for this book, those six counties, you know, when we think of the Woolworth Building, we think of New York City. But the first Woolworth Building actually stood in Lancaster, um, right off Penn Square there. And itself, it was a grand building, just absolutely gorgeous. And you look at, I have some old postcards of it. And you, how could they demolish that? What were they thinking? Um, likewise, in York, there was a, um, a block that had two unbelievably gorgeous buildings designed by the uh, Dempwolf architectural firm. Uh, John Augustus Dempwolf was York's most prominent architect for really from the 1870s through the 1920s when he passed away. And his firm carried on through his brother and then his son. And uh, he designed the York Collegian Institute and the York City Market House. Um, these were absolutely beautiful buildings that stood side by side, very prominent towers. The Market House had a tower that was more than 140 feet, um, high style design. Um, one was high Victorian Gothic. Uh, the neighbor was more of a high Victorian Romanesque style of architecture. And they were demolished to make way for progress in the 1960s. And where the market house stood was actually demolished to make way for a golf oil station. Remember the golf gas stations that used to be so prominent? And, you know, the irony of that one is it was like $20,000 to preserve the market house because it was, it was in a state of disrepair and it was unoccupied. Uh, so $20,000 to repair it. In the end, it cost more than $15,000 to demolish it. So why not put that money into preserving it? You have situations where places do need repair, but they are historic and preservationists want to preserve it, but can't come up with the money to preserve it, and so it just sits there? Yeah. I, that, unfortunately, is all too common. Uh, you see it in probably every community of note throughout the United States. It's a common battle. And honestly, it's something that preservationists struggle with. It's something that I struggled with when I was on the board of Historic York because um, we had that exact issue occur with a historic church. And I think you see that a lot with some of these urban churches right now. Uh, the churches were centers of communities. Uh, they were very grand when they were constructed. You know, some of the nicest architecture in any cities you'll find are the churches. Uh, what happened, though, is you had the sort of the suburban sprawl that took place in the 1950s and 60s, and downtowns entered a period of decline. That included the churches. You'd still have church members that were out in the suburbs, and they'd come in to the downtowns to worship. But many got older. 
many died, and so you have a lot of these urban churches that their congregations have shrunk significantly. And as a result of that, they don't have a lot of offerings coming in, and they haven't been able to maintain their buildings. So grand structures with grand details that are literally falling apart because, you know, where a church might have been wealthy and had hundreds and hundreds of members, it now has 70, 80 members. A lot of them are getting old. They don't have the money to contribute to the church to restore it. Uh, they haven't been able to keep up with the maintenance. And so you have, you know, the pool of preservationists saying this is a very important structure. It must be preserved. And then you have the congregations saying, you know, we'll go bankrupt if we try to do that. And so what happens is a lot of the churches end up for sale. Um, sometimes they get demolished. Sometimes new buyers come in and they renovate them for different purposes. So like, you know, it's interesting, you just look around the country at what churches have become. In some cases, they're people's residences. In some cases, they're brew pubs. In some cases, they're offices. You just never know what they're going to be converted to. Let's look at another one. You have the uh, Riverview house here, and it's uh, Mansard style, General Grant style. Yes. Second Empire. Second what, Empire. What so phrases mean? Riverview to orient you is uh, just outside of Marietta. It's probably a building that a lot of people know because they've driven by it, but they didn't know the name. So it's on Route 441, uh, right along the river. And it was built in the Second Empire style is kind of the most common name for it. But General Grant liked the style, so he's kind of attached to it. Uh, the Mansard style is named for the roof. Uh, so, you know, you have all types of roofs that you see on building. You know, the gable roof is very common. It's pretty much just an inverted V shape. Uh, a lot of people's homes have that. Then you have the gambrel roof, which uh, is two-planed on either side of the peak. Uh, the hipped roof, where you have, so you have a rectangular-shaped building. The roof rises from all four sides. But the mansard roof is very unique because it's almost vertical. And it's, it's two-plane, but the top plane is primarily horizontal or it has a very, very minor pitch. And then the lower plane is almost vertical. And what that does is it basically creates a usable story. So the top story of your house or your office building is really literally in the roof. And so you find lots of windows um, with dormers punching through the you roof. Have, you have a picture that has that with dormers, mm -hmm. windows Absolutely. punched through uh, that's opposite th this one in the book, the one, the James McCormick Mansion. Yes, absolutely. There's a couple great examples on Front Street in Harrisburg. And what you need to know about the Second Empire style, a couple things. You know, number one is it actually comes from Paris. And it is named for the Second Empire of Napoleon III. He set out during his second reign to rebuild Paris into a grand city with wide boulevards and hired an Austrian designer who came in and came up with the idea for that mansard roof. There were a lot of laws that said you could only build so high. So if you were a developer and you wanted to maximize your revenues, if you could turn the roof level into usable space, you had more space to rent. So mansard became very popular. But the other thing about the style is that it's the psycho style. And that is, you think the movie Psycho. Oh, the movie Psycho. You, you yeah. think the Adams Family House. These are homes that were built in the Second Empire style because they're typically stone, they're, they're brooding, they're imposing, they're scary looking. <laughs> and so a lot of people associate that style with horror movies. You have Lady Linden, which mm -hmm. is a B&B &B right now and it very is. colorful. Can you talk about use of colors too? Sure. Uh, Lady Linden is uh, 
I just love that building. It's located in the Avenues section of York. Um, that was a streetcar suburb. And like, you know, Harrisburg had streetcar suburbs, Lancaster, many of the communities in this region. And with streetcar suburbs, you're basically looking late Victorian styles through early 20th century styles. And, you know, sort of the granddaddy of Victorian architecture is Queen Anne. And Lady Linden is a Queen Anne house. But Queen Anne was one of those hodgepodge styles. So there are some defining features that make something a Queen Anne, but often different embellishments. And so that particular building has some, some leftover features of what was known as the stick style, just lots of really thin, narrow, decorative sticks on buildings. And it also has East Lake ornamentation. Uh, East Lake was not an architectural style, it was a form of decoration named for Charles Locke Eastlake, who was an English interior designer who designed furniture. His books were popular. American architects adapted them for buildings, and he looked over the pond and said, what are you guys thinking? This, this great detailing that you're using on porches is meant for furniture, not for architecture. He hated it. But with, with Queen Anne architecture, there's definitely an element of exuberance. And so you would often find uh, many different architectural features, many different textures. So you might find wood and stone and shingles and brick all on the same building. The Lady Linden um, is more like the Painted Lady. The Painted Ladies of San Francisco are very famous. And you have to, I don't know what the number is, but it's a, a couple of different uh, historically authentic paint colors go into making a Painted Lady. And so the uh, family that restored that and created the bed and breakfast wanted to kind of employ that painted lady theme. And so they have uh, four different paint colors on that building that are essentially the original colors that were there in the 1880s when it was constructed. It also has stained glass above the windows. Is that, mm -hmm. Does that mark it as a particular style or could stained glass in yeah, residences show up any Stained glass, lead glass appears in quite a variety of different styles. Uh, again, Queen Anne, was borrowing from all these different styles. And so, you know, your, your vivid colors, lots of different textures through building materials. Why not throw in a bunch of stained glass that make it even more colorful and picturesque? You mentioned churches, and you have in here the Salem Evangelical Lutheran Church in mm -hmm. Lebanon. This Pretty, was, and that looks like it's a lot of different styles too, is it? Well, it's, it's a high Victorian Gothic uh, located in downtown Lebanon. This was a wonderful find when I was doing the book. Uh, high Victorian Gothic architecture, there's, there's famous examples around the country, but I really didn't know of any really true grand examples locally. So really through uh, Google searches, uh, I came up with Salem. And it's, if you think of Gothic architecture, the most notable feature is the pointed arch. Uh, when you have churches, Christian churches typically tended to be Gothic with a pointed arch or Romanesque with a rounded arch. And so a typical Gothic revival church that might have been constructed before the Victorian era was monochromatic, uh, very kind of plain, either all brick or all stone, uh, very simple, uh, but with that pointed arch, maybe some grand stained windows in it, maybe with some towers, you know, still imposing structures, but not heavily ornamented. And the Victorian era, of course, anything goes as far as the architects were concerned. So they said, okay, let's, let's put a Victorian twist on traditional Gothic architecture. So you often see either 
buildings that are primarily stone or primarily brick, and they use the, the other masonry as an accent. So for the Salem church example, it's a grand stone church. It has these massive Gothic arches, but then it has these decorative bricks on the corners, which are known as coins, and around the windows, around the doorway. So it's very polychromatic and, and much more exuberant than you would find with earlier Gothic revival. Did these styles sort of go chronologically, or, or was there a lot of overlap where there were a lot of styles that were popular at the same time? They're typically, uh, once you get into the 19th century, you found more and more overlap. Uh, you know, when you look at American architecture, in the very early days, it was based on, you know, where the settlers were from. And then you had more unified with Georgian architecture uh, because, you know, we were 13 English colonies. So predominantly Georgian architecture was very common um, from, you know, New England through the southern states uh, right up to the American Revolution. And, of course, the architects at that point said, and, and honestly, there were very few architects as a profession during that period. It was mostly the builders that were making the stylistic decisions. But they said, well, we just fought the British. The Georgian style was named for King George. We got to get away from this. We need a new style. So that evolved into federal architecture. And federal architecture was kind of a unified national style in the days after the American Revolution. The irony of it, though, is the architects, the builders, were looking at pattern books created and published by Scottish brothers, the Adams. And so the style in England was known as Adams or Adams-esque. In the States, we called it federal style, uh, but very common. And then the designer said, you know what, this is still way too British. We have to get away from it. And Greek revival became very popular. And that was the architects. Now, you're at a period where architecture is becoming a real profession. And the architects are saying, look, we're a young democracy. We need to go back to the ideals of ancient Greece. And so Greek architecture became much more common uh, for grand public buildings. A lot of Washington, D.C., for instance, is Greek revival. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, a lot of people don't realize, was also an architect. Um, he designed Monticello and the Virginia State Capitol building. Um, he actually looked to the architecture of ancient Rome, um, whereas most of the architecture of the classical orders during that period was Greek. Jefferson was using Rome as his base, and so sometimes the type of style he used is referred to as Jeffersonian classicism, named for him. Uh, once you get beyond that and into the Victorian era, then you are looking at multiple styles uh, concurrently. And, you know, when you look at South Central Pennsylvania, the area featured in the book, you're also looking at buildings that tended to not necessarily conform to the stylistic periods that are defined in the style guides. Uh, you know, I like to joke and at York, we're always late to catch on to the national trends. So, for instance, colonial revival was really popular in the 1890s through 1920, early 1920s, and then America moved on to other styles. Uh, colonial revival was popular at the same time. Uh, French eclectic and Tudor revival were popular for houses. But in York, for instance, we're still doing colonial revival. We never left that era. And actually, a lot of suburban neighborhoods that are developed right now throughout the region, uh, you could call neo-colonial. It's still using the same forms, the same shapes, uh, much simpler, but also much larger than their colonial predecessors. Do you have some 
book, buildings in this uh, book that are just one of a kind things. I mean, I just was flipping open, uh, flipping through the book and came across Zembo Temple mm -hmm. in Harrisburg. Is that like a one of a kind thing that isn't well, really related to anything? Yeah, it, that falls under what's known as exotic revival architecture. And exotic revival was initially popular in the mid 19th century, and then it sort of saw a rebirth in the 1920s. And with exotic revival, architects were looking everywhere and anywhere for inspiration. So you have, for instance, a lot of mausoleums in the area that are Egyptian in style. You're driving along, you look up on a hill, there's a cemetery, and it looks like something's out of ancient Egypt. So that was very popular. Um, with the Zembo example, it, it is North African, or more specifically Moroccan architecture. And even this, the uh, inspiration for some of that is not just the buildings of Morocco, but the fez, the very unique hat. And of course, having the Masonic tie-in there uh, that the Zembo Shrine does, the fez style made a lot of, lot of sense to use artistically. Any styles come from Pennsylvania, or did we borrow everything from the outside? We pretty much borrowed everything from the outside. Uh, what I will say is, you know, German colonial obviously came from Germany, but the best examples of it are in Pennsylvania, uh, Lehigh Valley and you know, Lancaster, York counties. Uh, then there's also something known as the Pennsylvania farmhouse. And the Pennsylvania farmhouse isn't really a style. It's a very simple building, but it has two front doors. And if you're driving, particularly uh, through the country and you pass an old farmhouse, you're going to see this because they're, I never noticed them until I read about it. Then I noticed them everywhere. And it, it's just an interesting design, you know, typically what you would find with the, this Pennsylvania farmhouse, which really has its roots in the 18th century, some of the simple houses that were constructed, is uh, you saw two front doors. One would enter your living area, your entrance hall. That was where the guests came in. And then the second door, which was often right beside it, would get you into your kitchen. And that was only for family members to use. Now, before we run out of time, I have to ask about these kind of oddities, which you have a programmatic, a programmatic and mm -hmm. roadside architecture, or fantasy or novelty. And you have some diners and shoe fly pie restaurant in, <laughs> in uh, Lancaster that's a windmill. Yes. Can you talk about that and what possessed you to include those in this book? Well, you know, throughout the country, roadside architecture has been falling to the wrecking ball over the years. Uh, but one of the most famous examples of roadside architecture in the United States is the Haynes Shoe House. And that's located in Hellam in York County. If you've driven along Route 30, you've driven right by it. And it's basically a shoe that is 25 feet high and 48 feet wide. And like much of the roadside architecture you find throughout the country, it was built for mercantile purposes. And in this case, it was advertising. It was built by the shoe wizard, Malum Haynes. And he had shoe stores. And so to promote his shoe stores, he built this shoe house along the Lincoln Highway. And he didn't really have anything to do with it, so he put a honeymoon suite in. And if you were local and you were getting married, he'd give you the keys, go spend your honeymoon night in the shoe. And so that, that building has survived. Um, it technically falls under, I mean, it's roadside architecture, but it's programmatic. And programmatic just means a building that's designed in a non-traditional shape. What is the shoe house being used for now? Uh, it's an ice cream parlor, and occasionally it's open for tours. Uh, 
you also have a section on barns. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular style of Pennsylvania barn that's Sure. That's what, what we're known around here for is the Pennsylvania back bar bank barn. And, you know, when barns are everywhere. In fact, I work in a barn. Uh, my company is located in a Pennsylvania German bank barn that was built originally in the mid-19th century, burnt to the ground in the 1930s, but was rebuilt using as many materials as possible, and we converted it to an office building in 1989. But essentially, with the bank barn, you're looking at two levels of entry, and the barn would either be built into a bank, so for the main level, they could store the farm equipment, and the lower level would be the stable area for the animals. And a lot of cases, these bank barns weren't actually built into banks. So what the builders did is they took dirt and they pushed it up and created a ramp to the main level. So they could still have those two, two different levels, different functions. You know, so let's uh, try to squeeze a few more in. You have the Hahn House, mm -hmm. which is in uh, York County. Is, is that a built for private? as a private residence? Yeah, the Hahn House was built by the Emerton family in the uh, pre-1920. And it's just this magnificent Tudor revival, uh, 9,000 square foot private house. But when you look at it, you don't see any decorative half timbering and that's sort of the secret of Tudor revival was only half of the Tudor homes that were built in the early 20th century actually have that telltale half timbering. Though if you walk around to the back, there is a little bit of it. but it bankrupted the family. And so it ended up being converted to apartments. And for many, many years, it was the Han home, which was a retirement home for women. And then it caught on fire several years ago and was restored magnificently. And today it's actually a funeral home. When this book was done, have you been walking around kicking yourself that you didn't include this building or that yeah. building or that building? Yeah, I, I'm still discovering things. And for instance, you know, since I turned this book into the publisher, and as you know, once you turn the book in, it might be a year until the book is actually published. That was the case with this. I started working on the Harrisburg book. Um, that's sort of my final uh, coffee table legacy photo book um, for, for South Central Pennsylvania. Um, I've learned a lot more about Harrisburg buildings that I didn't realize was there when I was photographing and researching for the architectural book. So this next book will be similar to this, but Harrisburg focused? Yeah, it won't be specifically an architectural book, uh, but you know, when you're photographing Harrisburg, doing a book on Harrisburg, you're inevitably gonna be drawn to the Susquehanna River and then all the buildings. And so that's primarily what's featured. Um, I did a book on Lancaster County called Lancaster County Reflections. Um, that book was countywide. And so in that case, I was in Lidditz, in Ephrata, in Columbia, in Marietta, in Lancaster City, in Amish country, uh, just looking for things to write about and photograph. And, you know, really, every time I explore a new area, I just learn so much about it. Anything we haven't talked about yet that you are particular favorites of yours that you want to make sure we talk about? Well, one, one thing I was going to mention was sort of the path to get this book published. And, you know, I, I mentioned doing the visitor's guides. I mentioned the uh, virtual tour of York. But what happened was I really wanted to do a book on York's architecture. I mean, that was really the, the driver. And so I approached Arcadia, which is a publisher of, they have a couple series, but they're best known for their postcard histories. And I said, I, I've got this great idea for an architecture book. And they said, no, we're not interested. But we'd love to do a postcard history of York. Will you do it for us? 
And I thought, well, I've done all the research. I have, at that point, you know, 90, 100 different postcards. I'm like, sure, I can do that. And they said, well, it needs to be published, or it needs to go to press in five weeks. And stupidly, I agreed <laughs> to that schedule. You have a postcard and collection? I had a postcard collection that turned out to be not nearly enough for what I needed. So, you know, I found there's uh, the largest postcard store in the United States is actually off of Route 40 down in Maryland. So I visited there. I spent way too much money on eBay, getting into bidding wards on postcards. Um, ultimately, I relied on some friends of friends that had postcard collections. So that book came together. I really, literally the night before I had to turn it in, I was still working on the book. And that was published. And so I went to a second publisher, in this case, Schiffer Books. They're located in Atglen in Chester County, Pennsylvania. And I, by that point, I had a lot of the book written. And I met with one of their people, and she looked through it, and they said, you know, this is a great idea for a book. I'm not going to publish it, but if you get it published, I'll buy it. So let me know. Well, I started a dialogue with her, and that led to, I think I'm on my eighth book with them right now. The first one that came out with them was called York, America's Historic Crossroads. And it was a, a hardcover book that primarily focused on York City, uh, several hundred photos and lots of history that went along with it. So I still wanted to do the architecture book. And so I reached out to a publisher known as the History Press. And fortunately, they were looking to start publishing Pennsylvania titles. And I gave them the book that I had developed to that point, and they said, this is great, it's far too long, get rid of half of it and come back to us. So the first half of the book was looking at the historic buildings around York County. That's what we ended up publishing. It was called York's Historic Architecture. And I still had this, what I called a style guide for all the different styles you find in this region, and I wanted to do something with it. And so I went back to Schiffer, and they said, nope, not interested. And so I continued to look for other options, and probably a couple years passed. And then I happened to be talking to Schiffer, um, to a different person within their organization, and said, you know, I still want to do this, uh, this architectural guide, sort of this part of central Pennsylvania. And they said, well, you know what? That might be something we want to do. And so here this publisher that was the second one to rejected me and then rejected me two times ended up publishing this book, and I'm really excited with the way it turned out. I want to, in the time remaining, I want to ask you a couple more things. We're not going to sure. get time to talk about all the things we want to. Um, what's going on with architecture now? If, if somebody builds a house, do the designers just steal from old ideas and put something together, or well, is there I, anything new? You know, it's interesting. If you look at you know, really the latter part of the 20th century, um, even, even the early part, you know, you used to be able to buy your house from Sears Roebuck or from Montgomery Ward in their catalogs. And then the purchase of their homes were primarily developers, and they would develop neighborhoods. And then you get mid-late 20th century, all the suburban sprawl that took place, you basically have cookie-cutter homes. And that's like the neo-colonials we talked about. And that's a large majority of homes that are built in the United States today are just these cookie-cutter homes. You can go in, you can sit down with a developer, you can pick the pieces that you want, sort of like a kit of parts. But by and large, they have three, four, five standard designs. Uh, there are still architects that design homes. And they'll design something very modern or something that's much more classic in the style. I think one of the trends that you're really seeing right now with um, the higher-end home construction is sustainable design. 
So it may be designed using features of a particular design style, but it's really focused on its interaction with the environment. How can you reduce energy? What features can you put into the building in terms of the way you site it on the property to take advantage of shade and natural ventilation? Uh, what architectural features can you use, uh, like uh, the windows that you install or what's called light shelves? You might see a, a window that has a piece of metal sticking out like this. It's actually blocking direct sunlight from coming in and it's reflecting light onto ceilings and if you have more light coming in you can keep your lights off and lower your electricity bill. Uh, you have a picture of one in here and they have a, a green roof, mm -hmm. a growing roof. Yeah that's a, a really interesting example that uh, overlooks the Susquehanna River. Um, in that case that one was built with uh, you know, straw bales make the walls and plaster around it and it has a green roof. Green roof is a a sustainable design feature, uh, you know, it takes a lot of maintenance, and you have to you have to be willing to absorb the expense. In a lot of cases, still, uh, building a sustainable home is going to cost you more than building your typical cookie cutter developer home. And you have a section on bridges mm -hmm. that counts. Well, it it's architecture, uh, it's structure as opposed to building. But you know, you just think about the Susquehanna River crossings at Harrisburg. Uh, there are just some gorgeous bridges that have been built over the years. Um, you know, likewise, go to Lancaster and look at the multitude of covered bridges. Uh, there's, there's great bridges. They're fun to photograph. Um, some of them actually have architectural features, like the uh, Columbia-Wrightsville Bridge between York and Lancaster counties is actually Art Deco. It's got a lot of that that very angular design that was popular in the 1920s and 30s. And so here's a case of a bridge taking on an architectural style. Is this something you're just doing as a, a way of life now, always going and taking pictures of buildings and researching them and writing about them? And at, you know, at some it's, point you pile it together into a book? Yeah, pretty much. It's, it's an odd hobby. <laughs> Not a lot of people have it. I have a lot of fun with it. Um, what I found is, you know, there's, there's not a lot of money in writing books, but there's a lot of fun. There's a lot of reward. And so it, it opens doors for me. I speak to a lot of, for instance, rotary clubs, community groups, senior groups. And so I get out. I get to meet a lot of new and interesting people. And honestly, having this relationship that I have had with Schiffer Publishing for the past few years, my parents are Arizona snowbirds. And so through annual trips to visit them, I've been able to do a book on Tombstone, the, the old western town, as well as one on Tucson, Arizona. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Scott Butcher. He is the author of this book, Historic Architecture of Pennsylvania. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.